Today's episode, The Early Days of SpaceX. Hello and welcome to Technology in Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Eric Berger, author of Liftoff, Elon Musk, and the Desperate Early Days That Launched SpaceX, published March 2nd, 2021, by William Morrow. Thank you for speaking with me. Hi, Chris. Pleasure to be with you. So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and, and writing a book on it? Well, I've always been interested in space my entire lifetime, and I've covered the space industry for about the last 15 years. I was at the Houston Chronicle for a long time, and I lived near Johnson Space Center in Houston, so it, it was part of the science beat that I covered. Um, and in 2015, I left the Chronicle to work for a website called Ars Technica mm -hmm. and covered space full-time for them. And I just, over the last decade, I've realized that much of the advancement we've seen in, in spaceflight has been due to commercial space. And so I've been increasingly interested in privately funded efforts to explore space. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, SpaceX has been at the forefront of that. Mm -hmm. So um, tell me about the book then. How, how do you lay it out? It seems to be a chronological history of the early days of SpaceX. So t tell me about it. Yeah. So back in 2018, I was at the, the first Falcon Heavy launch and it was really quite a moment to see that rocket launch because it had 27 engines and it was so bright. And then to see the side boosters come back and land synchronously, uh, you know, it was really pretty incredible to watch that yeah, in person. And it, at that moment, I realized that SpaceX was not really just an interesting company, but they were the transformative space company of, of our generation. Mm -hmm. And I wondered I wanted to find out why they had succeeded where a lot of other companies had tried and failed. And so, you know, it turns out if you go back to the very beginning, uh, they started with the Falcon one rocket, which was one Merlin engine as opposed to the 27 on the Falcon, uh, Falcon heavy. And, you know, as I, as I sort of dug more and more into it, I realized that, that there was a pretty good story there. Um, especially surrounding the first three attempts to launch and then finally sort of the desperate final attempt that they made. Um, and moreover, if you went back and really understood the origin of SpaceX and what they had to go through, you could understand everything that they've achieved since. And so the period of the book focuses primarily on the period of 2002 to 2008 and the first four launches of the Falcon 1 rocket. Mm -hmm. And you may think, well, that's just kind of a, piddly old rocket who cares but mm. the fact of the matter is all of the foundations for their later success were set down during that period um by elon musk and the, the original team that worked for him mm -hmm. so tell me what was going on in 2002 what was the the situation for spacex and and musk and, and what was going on yeah so so musk had been looking around since since um 2000 late 2000 kind of at something at, at what he was going to be doing after PayPal. Um, and he, he'd always been interested in space and, and thought that, you know, it would be cool to send humans to Mars. Um, but the more he looked into it, the more he realized that, that the current launch industry was not set up for, for NASA or for anyone else to pull that off. You know, he saw Lockheed and Boeing he had a stranglehold on the U S launch market. Um, their prices were not going down. They were going up because they had this monopoly over, you know, domestic launch. Mm -hmm. 
And, and he realized that, you know, if we were going to have an economy in space that would ultimately allow humans to, to go beyond low earth orbit in a sustainable way. And, and, you know, he, he was not thinking about a flags and footprint mission back to the moon or onto Mars. He was thinking about, you know, extending the human sphere of, of activity, you know, cities ultimately on, on other worlds. Mm-hmm. He figured that you got to start the, the first, the, the critical first step is bringing down the cost of launch. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he he said, well, let's see if we can do that. And before you can start to reuse rockets or before you can, you know, get to the point where you're launching a Falcon 9 once every eight or nine days, as we've seen this year, you've got to prove you can launch a rocket in the first place. Mm-hmm. And to make it economical, you know, you can't build it with thousands of people and state-of-the-art components. You've got to see if you can build it with tens of people with with stuff that you build in-house and so that was really the initial goal was to prove this vertically integrated model of of development was possible with a small team Mm -hmm. how did he collect um the engineers that he brought together for this work yeah so he basically there were two phases in the first one he identified about four or five people who were in their 30s or early 40s to be kind of his vice presidents so this is Tom Muller, the, the vice president of propulsion, uh, Tim Buzza, who was the launch director, Gwen Shotwell, who was business development, Chris Thompson was structures, and Hans Koenigsman was, was avionics. So they were all experienced. Um, some had worked for Boeing, for, for Microcosm, the Aerospace Corporation. They all had some level of experience in the industry and understood how things worked. Mm-hmm. And so, so he brought them in, and then mostly he hired young engineers, um, people right out of college, um, or in graduate school. Mm-hmm. So in their early twenties who, you know, were from Stanford or USC or MIT, you know, there's super bright people mm-hmm. who are willing to work hard. And so then these people were guided by the vice presidents. Mm-hmm. What were the, um, sort of the political business, uh, legal conditions in place that allowed him to pursue this? Or was it just about someone stepping forward and doing it. (laughs) Well, it was complicated picture then as now, but he did have some fortuitous timing in the sense that SpaceX was founded in May of 2002. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, just several months after, after nine 11 in the United States. And about a year after nine 11 DARPA, U S defense advanced research project agency, decided that one of the problems that 9-11 exposed was that they didn't have the ability to rapidly respond um, to incidents around the world. Um, Because as you you may recall, 9-11, the difficulty was, you know, getting people and and supplies to Afghanistan um, to to search for Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that they created was this program called Falcon, ironically, um, that, you know, the goal was to have rapid capability launch capability like like you would get a payload from them and be able to put it up within a matter of days or weeks mm-hmm. you know this is still the same thing they want to do today like mm-hmm. they're, they're still waiting you know two decades later yeah. but they gave out some grants and spacex was one of the companies that they gave a grant to mm-hmm. and so darpa was pretty supportive of spacex early on um probably the most important government agency for them mm-hmm. who else um got grants for this this work or similar work at the time who, who still exists or may have disappeared. Do you know? So 
most of the companies are gone. Microcosm got a grant. They still exist, although they're not really in the launch business mm-hmm. at all. Uh, Lockheed got a grant. There were like 27 companies that got grants, most of which are long gone. Mm-hmm. SpaceX was the only one of them, in fact, that ever actually built a rocket that made it to space. Hmm. And um, so just thinking about the defense industry wanting to do this, why didn't sort of in a way, why, why didn't Boeing or other companies who knew the business step forward more aggressively? I'm just trying to figure out because, you know, they don't, they don't want competition. So I'm just curious how this happened. Right. So in 2002, 2003, there wasn't that much of a small satellite launch industry. Um, there weren't that many small satellites because a lot of the miniaturization that has enabled, you know, 100, 200, 300 kilogram satellites to exist today didn't really exist. The paradigm was much bigger, you know, much bigger vehicles back then. And they were making money hand over fist from the U.S. government. And the fact of the matter is, if you were a Boeing or Lockheed Martin then or even today, you know, a traditional aerospace company, you did not build a small satellite rocket with the expectation that it was going to serve commercial customers. You would build a small satellite rocket if the Department of Defense came to you and said, here, here's $2 billion, you know, develop the Atlas 0.5 or, you know, develop the Delta 7, which is, you know, a one-ton to Leo class rocket. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, you know, what Elon brought, and other and other people had tried to do this. They just hadn't really been successful. What Elon brought was was this idea of building a vehicle on spec, right? So he did not – no one was paying him to build the Falcon 1 rocket. He was building it because he thought there was a market there between commercial and government satellites to, to support its, its – but they would buy contracts. They would not pay for the development. Mm-hmm. And um, he must have – did he look for um, financial backing or did he mainly use his own his own resources? So he put $100 million of his own money into it, and that was basically the company, mm-hmm. um, at least in those, the first several years. Mm-hmm. Um, they got a very important grant from NASA in 2006. This was the COTS Award, the Commercial Orbital Transportation System grant, mm-hmm. that basically allowed them to build the Falcon 9 rocket or start working on the Falcon 9 and, and work on crew dra- or excuse me, Cargo Dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was that money, and that was about $278 million, I believe. Mm-hmm. That money, which was really essential, that allowed them to continue through the, the Falcon 1 problems. And then in 2008, they got some money from the Founders Fund. People like Steve Jervison were helping them out. But, but it, was pretty much, it was pretty much all Elon's funding early on. He was paying for everything, and he was very, very particular when he hired people. Like, you know, what is the cheapest you will work for? What is the, like he told Tom Muller, what is the cheapest you could build this kind of an engine for? Because he was not, you know, going to be able to spend $100 million developing the Merlin 1 engine. He was going to have to do that for a lot less. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Eric Berger, author of Liftoff. You can find more information about his work at Ars Technica or on Twitter at Space. If you like this episode of Technology and Space so far, please tap the like button and space dock the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or to get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, 
film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. What um, what sort of obstacles uh, was SpaceX face uh, apart from resources? Um, what what other obstacles uh, were they encountering as they tried to to do this? <laughs> well, I mean, there were obstacles from pretty much everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Because you not only had you know, you had the technical issue, right? Could you actually do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were trying to build a rocket that could lift about a thousand pounds to low earth orbit. And that's a lot, mm-hmm. um, for, for a small company. And then they were trying to, um, you know, manage all of that stuff. So like, you know, you have to figure out structures and, and, and tanks and payload fairing and separation mechanism, and, uh, you know, in addition to the engine, mm-hmm. so the technical hurdles were, were significant. Um, but then you had, you know, regulatory issues, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, back then the FAA and the U.S. government was not used to licensing purely commercial launch companies. So they had to do a lot of work with, you know, those agencies and with the Department of Defense to get them comfortable with a commercial launch company. Then they had, you know, they had the whole the whole problem with the launch site because, you know, initially they were going to launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base, which was a couple hours down the road from their factory in El Segundo. Mm-hmm. And for a number of reasons, um, they ultimately, you know, could not launch from there. And that's when they decided to go to Kwajalein Atoll in the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. where they had more control over the launch range to, to fly the Falcon 1. Um, and then you just had the, the politics of it, right? Because the big, the big aerospace companies, while they didn't consider SpaceX a threat in the 2000s, mm-hmm. they certainly were not welcoming with open arms this brash-talking South African who, you know, said he was coming to you know, disrupt the launch industry, right? I mean, <laughs> no one was no one was pulling back a seat at the table for Elon Musk and saying, "Here, you know, sit, sit at the sit at the big boys' table." They were, you know, they were quiet. They were quietly whispering in the ears of Congress or NASA or whoever, saying, "You can't trust this guy." I mean, listen to him; he's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was just it was it was all of those different things that they had to to battle through. What was uh, so looking at Blue Origin? And Virgin Galactic and others. What what was the? I, I don't know the time frame as far as when, you know, it sort of became competitive. At least you know in the, you know, people saying these were the the big ones. Um, yeah. So Blue Origin was actually founded in two thousand mm-hmm. by Jeff Bezos. For the first several years, that was mostly just a think tank. They weren't like a real company trying to build a rocket. They got serious about two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Um, Virgin Galactic started about the same time as SpaceX, a little bit later after the Spaceship One flight. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is it really hasn't been a competition between those companies because for there to be a competition, you know, those other companies would have to be close to, 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 to what SpaceX has done. And the fact is they haven't. Mm-hmm. You know, Virgin Galactic has flown Spaceship Two, you know, above 80 kilometers a couple of times. Um, Blue Origin has flown New Shepard above 100 kilometers, I think, 15 times now. Mm-hmm. Um, neither company has come close to get, getting to orbit. Um, and SpaceX has flown more than 110 orbital rockets. SpaceX has launched 20 supply missions to the International Space Station. They've launched two and, and pretty soon three crew missions to the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. They operate one third of 
all the satellites in orbit around the Earth with Starlink. They've built not just the Falcon 1 orbital rocket, but the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy. Now they're building Starship and Super Heavy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there really is no, comp- no competition in terms of what these other companies have accomplished. Now, that's not to say that Virgin Galactic might one day do suborbital tourism with Spaceship 2. I think that probably will happen, not on the scale they're talking about, you know, I, it's difficult for me to see them getting to more than a dozen or two flights a year. Mm-hmm. Um, Blue Origin could get there with New Glenn, right? They're, they're a big orbital rocket, but they're a few years away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people talk about competition, but it's really not, in terms of accomplishments, it's not a competition, mm-hmm. So at least not yet. And um, so the numbers that, that you were mentioning as far as what SpaceX has done, you know, someone might hear that and say, wow, that company must be, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the world, you know, doing just great profits and all that. Is that the case or is it more? About yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they, they obviously are not publicly traded, mm-hmm. um, but their most recent round of fundraising, I think had a valuation of on the company of about 75 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for a company that you could look at it and you say, you, you have to wonder whether they're revenue positive at this point. Mm-hmm. because they're investing so much in Starship and so much in, in, in Starlink, like they, they've got to be losing money, right? Their launch contracts are not covering, covering those activities. And so they probably will get to the point where they're making profits significantly, but that they're not there yet. Yeah. That was the, yeah. My, my question was, I didn't say it, but yeah, the, the costs that they were incurring um, seemed pretty significant. Um, overall, what about, I've actually spoken or interviewed some space engineers who at least one has said, you know, SpaceX, while they admire what they did is really just using engineering that was tested by NASA, like back in the fifties or sixties and was abandoned. Um, do you ever, have you come across anything like that? Yeah. I mean, you could look at the, you could look at the Merlin engine and say, well, that uses, um, a certain kind of, of turbo pump or that uses a, a, you know, a certain kind of, you know, combustion chamber and say, well, that was the same kind of thing that was used on the Apollo lunar landing engines. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you could look at their vertical takeoff and vertical landing technology and say, well, the NASA did that with the DCX in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. I mean, yeah, NASA did fly the DCX vehicle up to three kilometers. Right. But Three kilometers is a long way from a hundred kilometers. Right. And coming down from the energy of three kilometers versus a hundred in Mach seven or eight is, is it's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and NASA never did that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, all space companies, I think, build upon the learn from the achievements of others. Right. I mean, the Falcon nine at the end of the day is just, an orbital rocket and we've been flying those for, for six decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you know, give me a break. You mm-hmm. know, they, they actually are out there launching rockets, you know, several times a month, they're landing them on drone ships. I mean, NASA never talked about landing a rocket on a drone ship. Right. Um, and, you know, I remember in 2014 going up to Marshall Space Flight Center and talking to the engineers there about then the competition was between the Space Launch System rocket and the Falcon Heavy. And, you know, they told me, well, I don't trust a rocket 
any rocket that has more than nine, than 10 engines or nine engines. And so, you know, I, I mean, you know, and then a few years later, the Falcon Heavy launches and we're still waiting for the space launch system to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I hear that, but, you know, it's one thing to say, well, they talked about it, or they did some tests or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, but SpaceX actually went and flew it, right? Mm-hmm. And they made it economically viable. And, and they're launching these missions for one quarter um, of what NASA could have done otherwise. So, you know, I, I understand that, but, but it's one thing to sort of do some armchair quarterbacking. It's another thing to actually get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and SpaceX has got out there and done it successfully. Mm-hmm. And now what about the interplay, the fact that, uh, he was also, he's Tesla, you know, working, it, it seems pretty amazing that, um, you know, he has a car company and then he also has a space company, but m- maybe it has good synergies. <laughs> well, I mean, they're two completely different industries. Yeah. And that's what's most impressive to me about, you know, Elon Musk is that, you know, when he sees a problem, mm-hmm. he doesn't think, boy, that's a shame, right? The planet's warming. We're kind of screwing up the environment with climate change. That really, you know, I'm going to use less energy, but, you know, what, what, what can I do? Now, his response is, well, you know, if we could get automobiles to stop burning gasoline and, and use electricity, and if we could then get that electricity from the sun, you know, we could make a dent in climate change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's he's also concerned like, you know, humanity, as long as we live on one planet, is vulnerable to some kind of extinction event, mm-hmm. whether it be, be human caused or, or like an asteroid. And so he's like, well, as soon as possible, we ought to be trying to find ways to live on other worlds. So I'm going to build a transportation company that would enable, would enable that to happen. And so, I mean, these are very difficult things, right? I mean, and, and, and he hasn't disrupted just one industry, right? He's disrupted the automobile industry. And these are huge companies, right? Mm-hmm. Ford, GM, Toyota, Honda, Hyundai. I mean, these are not dumb people or dumb companies. These are companies that have been building cars in some cases for a century. And he's come in and, and found in some ways a better, a better means of doing it. Mm-hmm. And the same thing in the launch industry. I mean, we've been launching rockets for 60 years. These are huge established players that get, you know, billions of dollars a year from their governments. Mm-hmm. And he's coming and said, you know, we're going to do it faster, better, and cheaper. And they have done launch faster, better, and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and had enormous innovations along the way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's remarkable to me that he's had the success he's had. Um, yeah. And I would also say, I, I'm not familiar with the history of PayPal, but, um, and I'm not sure what, what his complete involvement is, but that also seems like a disruptive, a disruption of financial payment industry, which you would think a big bank would have led. Um, so I don't know. Okay. I might be off base here, but but can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean he he played he played an important role at PayPal for mm-hmm. sure, and I think you know I think he you know played played some role in, in taking the banking industry online mm-hmm. and disrupting that. And and as I say, back in two thousand two thousand one, he was looking around for other industries, you know, where he might be able to have some kind of a similar effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you could you could take it back to, to banking, but I think more more than that, sort of back in two thousand, you know, the banking industry was already going online. The medical industry was responding to the digital era. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, communications were being disrupted, um, but the rocket industry was 
in some ways regressing. And that's why I think he, he saw that as a good opportunity to shake things up. And did he just see it as a good opportunity or was he into space? Like what's his. Yeah, I I don't, he would not say he was motivated by the business aspects of it. I don't think he was. I think he was genuinely interested in figuring out a way to get humans living on another world. And in his mind, the best candidate world for that in our solar system is Mars. And so that's why he was from the beginning, laser focused on settling Mars. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what personal, obviously he's a talented individual, but can you identify personal skills or organizational skills that he has or uses to succeed in the, this way? Yeah, sure. I mean, he's obviously brilliant. Um, there's no question about that in my mind. He's one of the few people when I have a discussion with him, like I feel like I'm on a much lower intellectual plane, kind of looking up and, you know, cause he's thinking about things in much different ways, often very incisive um, and, and sort of getting ahead of things um, where my thinking is. Um, and, and, and I think his essential skills are one, he, he sort of has this internal drive to move forward as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and so, you know, he wakes up every day, I think thinking, how can I do this project? faster how can we get things done faster for example just today you know they, they did a static fire this sn11 starship prototype and they're going to try to fly it today mm-hmm. um, and that's pretty remarkable that you would test the vehicle's engines and, and turn it around and it's not a small vehicle it's a huge huge rocket ship and try to fly it the same day so it's it's sort of like always wanting to move faster is number one number two very good about hiring people, mm-hmm. um, identifying smart, young, talented engineers. Um, we talked about the students that he would hire. Um, and he was looking for people who were not just smart, but those people who would be willing to give their all for the company. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, if you went to work at SpaceX then, and, and even to some extent today, that, that becomes your whole life, right? Because he's extremely demanding. Um, there's no question about it. Working for him can be fun, but also intimidating, um, probably frustrating at times. Um, because, you know, in his desire to get things done as quickly as possible, you know, he is shoving his projects forward and that can be painful if you're involved in that, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot of energy to keep up with that kind of, that kind of a schedule. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he was good at finding people who were not just brilliant, but sort of who would be willing to work at that frenetic pace, at least for a period of times in their life to accomplish things. Because if you go to SpaceX, I mean, the downside is you can work your ass off and you can work for, you know, you can work for 80, 90 or hundred hours a week, but you're also going to build hardware that's going to fly, right? Mm-hmm. You're not at NASA where you're, you know, doing a safety analysis for months or, you know, on zoom calls all day or, or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or never at SpaceX, you're touching the hardware, you know, you're, you're building stuff that, that will be flying into space in months or, or, or a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're seeing things happen quickly and, and, and meaningfully, and you, and you can see yourself making a disparate difference, excuse me, mm-hmm. but it's also very wearing. Do, do, have they had a lot of uh, personnel turnover then or? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think I, I don't have any, any access to the data of, of personnel. I don't think the turnover at SpaceX is, you know, particularly higher than a lot of other space companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but certainly a lot of the people I talked to for liftoff, 
Um, you know, I, I, I talked to a lot of the earliest employees mm-hmm. um, to, to tell the story from their perspective, what it was like and, and how hard they had to work and the challenges they overcame. And, you know, for a lot of them, they were able to give about 10 years mm-hmm. in that environment. And then they were burnt out mm-hmm. or, you know, had just had, had, had reached a breaking point on what they could sustain in that environment. Mm-hmm. So how did uh, you do the research for this book? I, I guess a lot of interviews and um yeah, I went to um, I went to Elon Musk in in 2019 and, and said I thought that had I you know I had this idea for writing a book about the Falcon One, you know, telling really telling the origin story of SpaceX and and sort of helping people understand where they had come from so they you know we could re- understand where they were going. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty supportive actually of the idea. He thought it was a good idea. He was familiar with my work at Ars Technica. Um, and sort of, you know, knew that I understood a lot of the challenges that SpaceX and other commercial space companies were facing and, and had to overcome to be successful. So he agreed. And, you know, I, he, he talked to me, you know, on multiple occasions and, and then by sort of signaling that he was all right with this project that sent a message to, um, former employees. So people who don't work, didn't work at SpaceX before, but maybe they never talked about it because they weren't sure if Elon, you know, was okay with that or whatever, you know, they, cause they certainly, they respected, you know, they respected him. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even feared him a little bit. I don't know. But so, so he, you know, he was like, he talked to me, um, the Falcon one people who were still at SpaceX, you know, I went out to the factory several times and talked to them long interviews. I did lots of phone interviews with people. Um, and mostly in 2009 or 2019 and early 2020 mm-hmm. is, um, would you say he's sort of a, is he sort of a charismatic, uh, figure who, who can, um, work with a lot of people or is he more of a demanding, did you find he's more intense kind of a, I think he's both charismatic and intense. I mean, he's, he's very inspiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's not inspiring about working for someone who's literally trying to change the way humans get into space and open up possibilities with starship that, you know, really, you know, weren't on the radar. I'm 47 years old, you know, and and if, if SpaceX did not exist, I would not be expecting to see humans walk on Mars in my lifetime. Hmm. But because SpaceX exists, I suspect that probably will happen. And maybe even within the next decade, Hmm. who knows? So I, you know, it, it, it's that's very inspiring, right? SpaceX does not exist to win the next NASA contract or the next DOD contract. Now, does, does Elon and SpaceX want to win those? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, they do, but that's not their raison d'etre. Their raison d'etre is really to change things, you know, for the better in terms of access to space. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he's also, but, on the other hand, why does he accomplish these things that no one else has been able to accomplish? And that's because he's extremely demanding, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's both. Yeah, and I yeah, I asked the question not trying to be gossipy or anything, but to understand better how an individual can accomplish what he has. So um, you know, just kind of digging into that. Sure. Uh, I'm speaking with Eric Berger, author of Liftoff. You can find more information about his work at Ars Technica or on Twitter at SciGuy Space. If you like this episode of Technology and Space so far, please tap the like button and space dock the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or to get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. 
If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. When you were doing all this work, what, what most surprised you? What can't, what did you come across that was most surprising? Um, I think it was just how, how really interesting those first six years were and how close they came to failure on multiple occasions. Hmm. I mean, you know, if, if you could go back and look at half a dozen things that if this hadn't happened at that moment or this, it had a little bit worse luck here that the company would just not exist today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, if you think about the space industry today without someone like SpaceX to really come along and shake things up, it's a lot more boring place. Mm-hmm. Did you have any, any information or indication of what he might have done, what Musk might have done if, if this hadn't worked out? Well, I think he probably would have focused on Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he's also done things with Neuralink. Um, mm-hmm. And he's concerned about, you know, I think he probably would have focused on Tesla and maybe AI, artificial intelligence, which is another area that he's pretty interested in. Yeah, yeah. How far is he? Is, so you're right. I had just I had forgotten about that. Is there a lot of progress in AI, because I know they're still doing trying stuff, but um, do you know? <laughs> Not really. I mean, that's that's kind of outside the scope of my right. expertise. You know, he he had an event last year with Neuralink mm-hmm. where he talked about advances that they made. There's a lot of skepticism in the academic community about you know what he's doing, whether he'll be successful, whether he's made substantial advances. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, there was a lot of skepticism in the aerospace community about what he was doing in space, and ultimately he broke through. But whether he's going to be able to achieve that with Neuralink, I have no idea. I can't judge that at all. Okay. Um, was there a particular question um, that you really wanted to try to get an answer to, and either you did finally have a breakthrough or you still would like to know? You know? Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the main questions that I wanted to answer was, was how much of the company's success was due to Elon and how much was he – you know, responsible for, for what they accomplished, Mm -hmm. you know, was he just this rich person who had a couple hundred million dollars in an idea and then turned that over to people? Um, or was he really involved on a day-to-day basis? And the answer is he really was involved on a day-to-day basis. You know, he likes to call himself the chief engineer of SpaceX. And I don't think that's a BS title Mm -hmm. because when I went back and, you know, talked to these people, I would always ask them, you know, well, you know, what was Elon's involvement, yada, yada, yada. And they would say, you know, he was in, he was in all the meetings, right. In all of these technical meetings. And when they had, when they had, they, and they would take challenge, tackle the most difficult technical problems first. Mm -hmm. Um, and he would make the final call. Like, you know, he would, he would come up with the solution or he would tell them which avenues to try first to try to solve the problem. So he had, a complete grasp of the technical problems with the fal- or technical issues w- re- relative to launch and, and was sort of leading the way. Um, and, and, you know, through those problems and when they had problems, they were, you know, they were told to email him. 
mm-hmm. and, and he would get back. So he was providing the funding, the vision, and a lot of the technical drive. I mean, he said, you know, he spent 70 or 80% of his time on engineering challenges at SpaceX. He was very lucky to have Gwen Shotwell, um, whom he hired in 2002 to run the business side of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, there's a lot that's challenging in this, but uh, was there a technical issue that you came across that they were trying to solve and either just had to give up on, um, or maybe they're still trying to push forward? Um I think it, I think it was I think what was interesting to me was to, to to understand that they were they were trying to learn about reusing rockets from the very first launch. Mm-hmm. Um, so even back in 2006, they were they were they were experimenting with reusing first stages. Mm-hmm. Um, on that very first Falcon One launch in March of 2006, they put a parachute on the first stage, and the idea was that it would go up, it would deliver its the second stage. Um, in orbit, and then it would start coming back to the atmosphere, pop its parachute to slow down, and they would recover it in the ocean. They actually rented um, an army boat called the Great Bridge mm-hmm. and sent sent a staffer out on the Great Bridge to look for the falling first stage. And they did that for all five of their Falcon 1 launches from Kwajalein. Mm-hmm. They never recovered a first stage for various reasons. But, I mean, reuse was part of the equation from the very beginning. And they really, you know, Elon's quote to me, we were huge idiots um, about the technical scope of actually making that work because, you know, a parachute alone was not going to slow down the Falcon 1 or a Falcon 9. They were going to have to go through and understand all these other things that they ultimately, you know, achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, are they doing any work on uh, fuels, like um, better fuel, uh, better fuels for, for propulsion or? Well, certainly with the Falcon 1 and Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, they've used kerosene, rocket propellant 1, which is a pretty well-understood fuel. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't anything really revolutionary with that. And, I mean, they, with, with Starship, of course, they're using methane as their as their propellant. And that is new. Like, you don't see big rocket engines that have run on methane before. Um, but it does seem to be the next big thing because Blue Origin has done, used the same fuel for, for its BE-4 engine. And you're seeing other, you know, other space companies around the world look to methane as kind of the fuel of the, the future. Mm-hmm. So I, I think methane is somewhat inno- innovative, but is that they? I would not say that like in in you know rocket repellents is one area where they really really push boundaries on. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any issues that you just looking at what they're trying to do? Any issues that you personally see that either uh, business um, legal. Uh, any any avenue that could easily be fixed to help commercial space launching along? I mean, my my biggest issue, and I've written about this for a decade, mm-hmm. is that it's to me it's ludicrous that the, that the U.S. government is still in the business of developing rockets. And mm-hmm. I'm speaking mostly of NASA's Space Launch System rocket. It's clear that the commercial industry is much better at that now than a large institutional program at NASA. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's taken the agency a decade and $20 billion to develop the the core stage of the Space Launch System rocket. And it may finally launch next year. We'll see. You know, if they'd given two, a couple of $5 billion contracts to NASA and SpaceX, you would, have, you would have had to give SpaceX like half a billion. They would have been fine with that. But if you'd given half the money they spent on the space launch system to two companies, you know, NASA would have two kick-ass 
super heavy rockets flying today um, for much less than the space launch system will cost. Um, and I think we finally learned that lesson and, and eventually the space launch system rocket will get canceled, but it's been an ex- damned expensive lesson to realize that, that yeah, it, it's, it's, it's boggling to me why the U.S. government is competing with private industry to develop rockets when private industry is so clearly superior. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of companies are looking into um, ways to clean up debris in space. Is is SpaceX at all involved in that endeavor? Yeah, they're involved by, by because they're creating a lot of it, right? <laughs> um, they, that that that's a that's a very difficult issue for them because you know as I say, they now operate about a third of all satellites in low Earth orbit with mm-hmm. the Starlink constellation and. And the more stuff you put up there, the higher the chances of collisions. And, and they actually, SpaceX and NASA, just signed an agreement actually to better understand the problems that Starlink satellites pose to NASA assets in low Earth orbit, including the International Space Station, to make sure that SpaceX can maneuver you know, those satellites out of the way. Mm-hmm. So they're involved in that, but they're not like a company like Astroscale or someone like that who's actively trying to mitigate debris. Mm-hmm. Right, the, the cleanup satellites. There, SpaceX is, you know, putting up a couple hundred satellites almost every month now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real problem, and I think they're going to have to be part of the solution. And we're going to have to hope that that they really are able to manage that, that mega constellation and, and you know use the xenon propulsion systems on those spacecraft to um, for avoidance maneuvers. Because now, like, I think something like a third of all potential collisions in low earth orbit involve Starlink satellites. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about SpaceX's um, interactions with other space agencies like European space agency or, or others? Is there much or. Um, no, I mean, they are a real threat, right? So in the 1990s and the aughts, um, if you had a large geostationary satellite that you wanted to get into space, you went to Europe and bought an Ariane 4 or 5 launch. Or maybe you went to Russia and bought a Proton launch. Um, today, you don't. You, you put it on the Falcon 9 unless you want to pay a heavy premium because the Falcon 9 flies often and is low cost, and you can have schedule certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's – it's, so for like the Russian space program and for the European space program, you know – they have institutional launch needs where they need to get their own government satellites into space, but then they hope to offset the cost of their launch program by flying commercial satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and in the 1990s and the aughts, the you know, U.S. rocket companies had 0% of the global commercial launch market. Um, now it's like 70 or 80%, and that's all because of SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And, 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 yeah, so it's really harmed those countries and, and industries. And so now they're looking at ways to try to compete with the Falcon 9 rocket. Um, and, and neither Russia nor European Space Agency have a, have a really a good answer at this point. Mm-hmm. China is is moving faster, I think, and, and trying to more closely copy what SpaceX has done. And they have the funding to probably compete. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it's it's they've, they've really shaken up the global launch. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. And also SpaceX being a an American company, there's I, I would imagine some countries have sort of national security concerns if SpaceX is doing really well. 
Um, yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, you know, this, you know, Europe is going to want to maintain its independent access to space. Like they're never going to want to say, well, we're just going to launch everything on U.S. rockets. And Russia, of course, would never do that. And China won't do that. So they've, they've got to have some kind of independent access to space. The question is, does the government now have to foot 100 percent of the bill of that versus sharing costs out with commercial launch contracts? Mm-hmm. And uh, did SpaceX early on and, and through now, do you know how much they work to protect their corporate secrets? You know, just I, I don't know. Um, I, it's not something I've ever really looked into. Certainly with the ITAR restrictions, um, they want, you know, it, that, that prevents the export of, of stuff that could be related to missiles mm-hmm. um, and rockets and things like that. Uh, I, I can tell you an anecdote from the very first Falcon 1 launch mm-hmm. when that when the Great Bridge recovery ship was starting to enter the, the area where they expected the Falcon 1 first stage to come back down. Um, this, you know, this obscure small area in the Pacific Ocean, there happened to be a Chinese, quote, fishing ship in the in the region. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that even at from the very beginning, the Chinese were spying on what SpaceX was doing. Mm-hmm. So I think that and, and from the recent innovations we've seen in China, you know, they're looking at using grid fins um, for for controlled reentry and, and probably for landing and, and some of the private companies over there are developing rockets that look a hell of a lot like the Falcon 9. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of looking well into the future and almost thinking in science, science fiction terms, but, you know, I just imagine what if you had SpaceX and then some other country competing for Mars, you know, like, you know, um, I don't know that that's well into the future and that's complete speculation, but that's just kind of where my mind went with that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a, there's a healthy competition in the moon mm-hmm. um, between NASA and its partners and China and its partners. Mm-hmm. Both of them are pretty interested now in sending human missions to the moon. I don't think there's any competition right now to send humans to Mars. And, you know, if Starship is successful, that vehicle puts them way ahead of anything else on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, what... Uh... Are there any other um, issues or themes you explore in the book that we haven't touched on yet that you might want to mention? I, I just, I, I would say that it's it's like, it almost reads like a thriller mm-hmm. because it's, you know, in the first half of the book, I develop a cast of about a dozen characters who are some of the earliest engineers, Elon, of course, and Gwen Shotwell, but then other people who people, other people who readers will not be familiar with at all, Mm -hmm. um, who all made critical contributions. And then the second half of the book just kind of runs through the narrative of the, those four launches and, and sort of the trials and tribulations that they faced to ultimately reach, you know, a successful conclusion. Um, And it's just, it is a great, sort of story about the space industry. Um, and I would put what SpaceX achieved, you know, with, a, with about 150 people in the 2000s on par with, um, you know, the Apollo program in the 1960s. It was kind of like that kind of moment for commercial space. Mm-hmm. So then apart, so to um, expand on that, so apart from entertaining and educating, what, what else do you hope readers will take away from this book? Um, just, just an appreciation of what they've accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, it, one of the things I, tr- I try to do in the book is set, set the scene, um, by, by showing several other companies that had tried to do what SpaceX did and failed mm-hmm. before they came along. Um, 
and then sort of highlight the, some of the challenges that we talked about earlier, the regulatory challenges, the financial, the technical challenges, you know, that they had to push through to ultimately even get to orbit for the first time and then sort of really explode from there. Mm -hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? No, I had a, um, I had a contract, uh, with, uh, with William Morrow, which is owned by Harper Collins before, before I even went to SpaceX. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and, and frankly, I was really pleasantly surprised. All of the people in the book were really eager to share their stories because a lot of these had never been told before. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I got to really talk to them frankly and, and, you know, get lots of stuff that just hadn't ever been publicly talked about before. If they weren't, um, if say the individuals weren't uh, willing to help out, you know, let's say they were resistant, were you, were you ready to become more of, you know, get more in the weeds and do the investigative journalism or, you know, <laughs> does that make I mean, sense? I mean, yeah, I could have done that, I guess, but I probably, I had several people I relied on that were pretty good about helping me, helping me pinpoint who could tell certain parts of the story. And so I probably would have just gone back to those people and said, Hey, can you, can you lean on this person a little more? Is there someone else who could tell me the story? Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, I mean, it, it never got close to that. Everyone was really interested in sharing the story mm -hmm. um, and, and have been, they've all been thrilled to see the book come out and kind of share their story with a wider audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On Amazon, the ratings for the book are amazing. I think they're perfect. <laughs> So yeah, it's incredible. I mean, people, I mean, you know, and not to brag, but I mean, it is, it is a great story. And I just feel lucky, frankly, to be right place, right time to be the person that, that came along, you know, about 10 to 15 years after this had happened to, to be able to put a bit of a historical spin on it and, and, um, to get to tell the story because it's, it's a remarkable story and it hasn't really been told before. Yeah. So what excites you most about space and space exploration? Is it more something coming up in the short term or do you have just a greater vision that you're excited about? I think, um, I, I mean, I'm just excited because there's so much happening now mm -hmm. um, that the future really is, is pretty unclear. Like, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when it was basically NASA and the space shuttle building the international space station, you had a pretty good idea of what was happening in space for the next 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. But now there's so much activity in commercial launch, um, in low Earth orbit space stations, um, with the Starship, with other companies, just there's lots of revolutionary approaches being taken to launch and in space activities. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to know what's going to happen in the future, but it's happening at such a rate that the future is much more dynamic than it than it than it was previously. Like, I don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. and bad things could happen. Like we could, we could have a Kessler syndrome and, and low earth orbit become cloudy with debris. Right. Mm -hmm. And that would be game over for a lot of things. But I think it's equally possible that, or, or much more possible that we're just sort of charging headlong into the future where we're going to really open up space to economic activity, ec economic activity for the first time. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's, going to take us to really interesting places so um i think you said before spacex is focused on the space launches right now but have you come across any thoughts about spacex doing a space station or anything any any orbiting stations 
I mean, they could. I mean, if, if, if NASA does a contract like a half a billion dollars from Orbital Space Station, they could certainly turn Starship. That's big enough to be, you know, an orbital, an orbital space station. So they could bid on that contract. Hmm. The Starship, just like they use Starship, you know, for a, for a human landing system um, for the Artemis program. So I think they might consider building that because that would, if you could get money to develop Starship with closed loop environmental systems, you would go a long way toward getting the technology you need to make that vehicle capable of interplanetary travel because you're going to need to figure out closed-loop environmental systems to go to Mars. So if you could do it on NASA's diamond low-Earth orbit, that's all the better. Oh, that would be cool. Um, what, what's your current writing project? Not sure yet what I'm going to do next. Um, I think if I were writing again about SpaceX, it would probably be to focus on how they mastered reuse mm-hmm. um, because I think that was a, an extremely difficult challenge and, and it took them a lot of trials and tribulations to use that phrase again, to get to that point where they succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's maybe going to be focusing on that, but I'm not sure yet. Okay. Um, where can people find you online? Um, I, I write for a website called Ars Technica. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can find me there or, or Twitter at Sci-Guy Space. Uh, so it's Sci-Guy, so it's S-C-I- <laughs> S C I G U Y S P A C E Sci Guy Space. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? No, I would just sort of echo what we just talked about. That that this is an incredibly exciting time in spaceflight because there's so much happening and it's so unpredictable. Um, there's so much private capital moving into spaceflight. You know, the the future is is going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. So okay. stay tuned. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure, Chris. In the next episode, I speak with Carla Diana, who talks about the design of smart products and robotics. Space dock the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. And follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and this podcast, Technology and Space. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening. And I hope to see you again soon.